Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. If you are a returning listener, we would love if you would review us and any feedback you may wish to share as well. If you've tuned in this episode to elevate your mindset, your game, or just your day, you've come to the right place. This episode, my guest is a former NFL linebacker who went on to get his PhD. He has a book. We have it linked up here, Decision Point, The Moment Leaders Are Born. He was the performance psychologist for the Super Bowl 50 world champion Denver Broncos. He's also worked with the Colorado Rockies, Miami Dolphins, as well as companies like Apple, Google, and one of my wife's favorites, Noodles & Company. Welcome to the show, Dr. Rick Pereira. Welcome to the show. How are you? Man, I'm beautiful. It's a great day to be alive. It's a great opportunity to succeed every single day, brother. I love it. Well, uh, excited to have you on. Uh, I know we know a mutual guest. I see his beautiful signed jersey hanging behind you, Ryan Harris, who's been on the podcast. So um, I've been wanting to have you on. I hear you on the local uh, 104.3 in the mornings and uh, love what you have to share uh, on there and been wanting to have you on this podcast to share some of that wisdom. But first, what... I know you're a former athlete. What got you into the field of, of sports psychology, performance? What really uh, got you from athlete to that, if you could kind of flash us back? Sure, yeah. You know, when I was an athlete, um, I really used to always take inventory of my environment. I've always been a very observant person by trade and by practice. So in any environment that I was in, I was always um, just checking people out checking out my environment and observing people. So I noticed that in college, that when I played college football, that there was a lot of different personalities. And I found it interesting of all the guys that didn't make it. There was a lot of very talented athletes that didn't make it for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. And then there were other people who had average talent, for example, and they would, they would be very successful. So I remember my brain would start to turn and the gears would start to move and say, wait a minute, why is that? And then when, I, when I, I was an undrafted free agent with the Broncos and I got into training camp and I looked around and now, now I'm training with these guys I've been watching on TV all these years and I'm watching them and I'm like, you know, some of these guys aren't, so, aren't, aren't as great as I thought they were and then others are better than I thought they were. So it was, a, it was always a question for me why some talented people don't make it and why others that are not as talented end up being stars in the league. And um, I can give you an example of that. That's very clear. Um, A player, former player for the Denver Broncos, Carl Mecklenburg um, from back in the day, we came in as rookies together in 83. And if you would have told me Carl Mecklenburg would have been a future all pro player, I would have said, there's no way because from the neck down, and I, with all due respect, Carl, um, from, the ne- <laughs> from the neck down, very, very average. Not fast, not athletic, but from the neck up, very cerebral, very perceptive. Um, and then also that translated into understanding the game and really how to play the game with, again, average level neck down talent, if you yeah. will. Yeah, awesome. Um, when it comes to developing this this mindset well first i guess to your example what were some of the characteristics that 
kind of either created that make it or didn't quite pan out to your talent? What, what were some of those key things that you noticed between the, the Carls and maybe the super talented people that didn't excel as much as Carl? Yeah, I think it's the ability to regulate emotions. You know, I, a lot of the talented players I was around, and again, I was an ex-linebacker, so I was around a lot of linebackers. I saw a lot of linebackers that would elevate their emotions and uh, to the point where it would hamper their ability to think through processing. Mm. You know, one of the things that, like when I was with the Broncos, there was a, it was, you know, the, our defensive coordinator was a guy named Joe Collier, and he was very cerebral. Um, there was a lot of defensive calls to make. There are a lot of defensive checkoffs to make. And if you didn't regulate yourself emotionally, you wouldn't be able to do that. Yeah. And so I, I remember we had a, a kid in camp with us. Um, I just remember his name, last name was Lockman. I don't remember his first name, but physically he was a, he was a freak. I mean, he was a freak. I mean, fast, strong, athletic, everything. But he would get frustrated. He would get upset at himself because he couldn't remember the checkoffs and the defenses to check down to. So he wasn't able to have success. And then conversely, someone like Carl, who was able to regulate himself and kind of had a very consistent mood to him, he was able to regulate himself, go through the checkoffs. So you could start to see him elevate as time went on through training camp because he could, he could run the defenses the way they were supposed to be run. And so the coaches, our linebacker coach, which was, who was Merle Moore back then, would, would start to show a favoritism to him because he could run the defenses we were supposed to run. Whereas the other guys who may be freaks from the neck down couldn't run the defenses that they were supposed to run. So that was, that, that's one characteristic is regulation of emotions. Yeah. And we call that um, somatic anxiety, which is the body, cognitive anxiety, which is thinking. Sure. Well, taking a, a kind of a, a tangent here, why is when developing a high performance mindset, why is front loading seems to be like a buzz term lately, uh, front loading some of that work. Can you explain one, maybe one, what that is and two, why it's beneficial for us mentally and performance wise? Yeah. Well, front loading is just teaching yourself um, what we call PST psychological skills training how to regulate yourself and how to be in a really good spot before anxiety hits, or as we call it, before live bullets are flying. Yeah. Because you get it up front in the, in the mental side of the game, you're prepared. You know, in, in our industry, performance slash um, sports psychology, oftentimes in the last 20 years, you were just called when there was a fire to put out. For example, let's say a, a major league pitcher can't locate his pitches a quarterback is having anxiety and, and is not really able to go through the playbook in a very systematic way. So therefore it's affecting him physically too. Um, you're called in to help those quote unquote problem guys, but front loading means that we're, we're proactive instead of reactive. You prepare the brain before live bullets are hitting before those situations hit. So you're able to take anxiety and regulate it. So you never get in those situations where, you're, you're hampering yourself. Because I'll say this, here, here's the key. Um, there's a lot of athletes out there playing with 60, 70, 80% of their potential from the neck down because they're handicapping themselves mentally and emotionally. And it's really sad because some of these kids are playing with 70% potential and they're still one of the best in the league. 
So imagine how, what they could do is if they regulated themselves mentally, man, they'd be playing at 95, 98, 100% of your potential, they'd be rocking it, man. So yeah, it's really important to front load to get that knowledge base before live bullets are flying instead of seeking out someone like myself after there's an issue. Right on. Um, kind of flashing back to, to your playing days to set up this question, I guess. Um, more and more, especially professional athletes, uh, you know, mindfulness. Uh, in the, the mid-80s, how much was that being talked about in NFL locker rooms <laughs> um, compared to, to what you see now across NFL athletes, tons of NBA athletes into these meditation, mindfulness? Can you talk a little bit about – Besides maybe some of the financial gains that many people have made in the mindfulness business, uh, why we've seen such an involvement and greater acceptance for that as athletes? Yeah, well, for, to answer your first question, we didn't even have mindfulness <laughs> on the plate in the mid '80s. In the mid '80s, mindful made your 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 mind was full full yeah. of a bunch of noise is what yeah. it was full of. But um, you know, mindfulness took off in the mid to late eight, mid to late nineties in the organizational world, in the business world. We talked a lot about mindfulness in, in the business culture. And so we started recognizing that it was valuable. And, you know, essentially it means that you're present. You know, we have a saying that says, be where your feet are. Mm -hmm. Well, where are your feet? They're right here. They're right underneath you. Be present in your thoughts, feelings, and perceptions. Because if your mind is somewhere else, you're never going to reach 100% of your potential. And if you think about it, that's why people get sideways. Um, for Bronco fans, for example, here locally, they saw um, Jared Judy this season have a, a couple games where he was dropping numerous passes. And if you think about it, after his first drop, he probably was thinking about that he didn't want to drop a pass. And in the, in the mental game, we say, um, if you have to force yourself to think about something, then it's probably not going to be a good situation. So what he probably did is he was thinking about his last drop. So then that led to him dropping the next one and dropping the next one because he wasn't present. Because if you take each individual play and you make it present, which is mindfulness, you make it present, you filter out what happened on the last play. You filter out what happened in the last quarter, the last game, and each play is independent. But mindfulness took off from the business world, organizational world, and then we started applying it in the early 2000s um, for sports and for athletics. And it's been very good. I mean, it's, it's um, you know, I, I, as a PhD myself, I take a lot of pride and a lot of, um, you know, honor in that I've done a lot of work in my educational piece yeah. to teach mindfulness because they trained us that in our programs. But you, you pretty much see almost anybody teaching mindfulness now. And some of them are qualified and some of them are not. But I say this, if it can help someone, then I'm all for it. But mindfulness does have a place. It's, it's not the wheel, if you will, but it's a spoke in the wheel. Yeah. I, I think it's just so important. I, working with a lot of college and high school athletes, I just want to introduce them to that wheel. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, and sometimes for me, I guess my, personally, my meditation and mindfulness is it becomes personal and how you can, how you're applying it and what, what you need, I think. And um, just being able to introduce that wheel. And then when they're in there, man, meet some different spokes, whether, you know, and, and how that practice can help you. So I like that wheel analogy. Um, another thing I want to talk about your business, you got float float tanks down at think one. Tell us a little bit about think one. 
I've been dying to get in a sensory deprivation tank sometime. So I'm going to probably have to try to schedule time, come down there. Um, but tell us a little bit about uh, Think One and, and what you guys got going on there. And maybe a little bit about how that sensory deprivation can help not just the, the body, but the mind. Well, I'll tell you this, Tyler, don't, don't try to do anything. Do it. There we, we go. We, we <laughs> right people, off. We always tell people in our practice, man, eliminate the word try. And, I, yeah. and for, the, for the listeners out there, I'm going to tell you something. There's two words you want to eliminate from your vocabulary. Try and replace it with do. And then problem, replace it with challenge. Because I'll tell you what, problem's a stop word. The brain registers that as a stop word. And try just means, you know, the back door's open in case it doesn't work out. Well, I tried. Forget that, man. You do things. Even when, you, even when someone says, well, I try a piece of cake. And I'm like, you have a piece of cake. You may not like it, but you have a piece of cake. So don't try. Come down here. Okay. Second of all. Schedule um, this afternoon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a sensory deprivation tank is just that. It deprives the human being of sensory stimulation. The reason we want to deprive someone of sensory stimulation is it helps us get very present. The brain, if you think about the brain, it's the anatomy. The mind is the brain plus input. So the mind is different than the brain. But the brain, when you have complete lack of stimulation, it rests at an exponential rate. And most people don't even know what that feels like. Even when you're sleeping, Tyler, you hear the furnace, you hear airplanes, you hear crickets, you may hear snoring the person next to you. I got kids. Um, kids, dogs, I mean, you, you, you name it, right? Yeah. But when you have complete silence, um, sensory deprivation means there's no light, there's no auditory stimulation, there's no visual stimulation, there's no cerebral stimulation. Then and only then can the brain rest completely. And you have to experience this to understand what your brain will do. I've had people who come in here and says, man, I, I, I closed that top and I left my body. Yeah. I left my body. It was like being on LSD. And now I can't testify to feel what it feels like to do LSD. But I can tell you this, it, it's the most restful portion of any experience I've had in my life. Way more restful than sleep. Uh, we tell people that 50 minutes of, of floating is equivalent to two hours of REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, which is level five. So we, you know, a lot of athletes use it for recovery. A lot of just everyday people use it for stress reduction, but it fits into our ecosystem. Think one, it was de derived out of developing the ecosystem for all performers. And we're not just for athletes. We're for everyday people who are CEOs, CFOs, everyday workers. I mean, I got truck drivers that come in here that just want to relax. You know, I got moms and dads that come in here, but it's one of it's again, it's a spoke in the wheel. It's not the wheel. We have over 10 different modalities here at think one. <clears throat> we do neural feedback. We train the brain through computer programs. We have sent, we have uh, Tibetan singing bowls. Are you familiar, familiar with those Tyler? I, I like to listen to them when I meditate, like, you know? Yeah. 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 So we do, we do sound baths here. Cool. That, again, I'll spell that because it's sound baths, <laughs> B-A-T-H-S. Um, we, we have, we have uh, neural feedback rooms. We have alpha stim where we stimulate the alpha brainwaves through electrical currents. Um, we have biomass that have amethyst crystals in them. You heat it up 
and you lay on it and the, the far infrared waves penetrate eight inches to the body, breaks down lactic acid, calms the central and autonomic nervous system. So we have a real combination of Eastern methodology, Western methodology, and then I'm part Native American from the Navajo tribe, which you might see all my bracelets right yeah. there, but maybe the listeners can't see it. But um, so we have a lot of Native American tribal folklores here too. So we're very eclectic. We're very open, but I'll tell you one thing, man, we kick ass. We yeah. help people be the best version of themselves every day. I vibe with that. That sounds, you, you kind of answered the next question. I was going to ask about some of those modalities. As I heard you talk about them, uh, when you talked about the, was it the crystals? Yeah, the Amazon's crystals. So is, is that effect similar to, and maybe just more of a, a different natural holistic way per se? Like I've been in some saunas that have that red infrared light and some of that. Yep. Is that aiming to do similar things to the body, just different methods? Yes. So we have the biomats, which are, you know, like six foot long by two or three feet wide. And you lie down on them. And those, when you heat, we have a motherboard that controls the heat that's provided underneath the crystals. When you combine heat to, to amethyst crystals, it provides, provides what we call far infrared waves. And those waves are what calm the body. And, I, and so what I was doing, you know, I think, I don't know if you, we've talked about this, but I was the Broncos psychologist mm -hmm. in uh, 15, 16 when we won the Super Bowl. But after that, I left and went to Miami and I was their psychologist. And, you know, one of our quarterbacks there was having an issue with, with anxiety. Um, and so I, I developed this three-step methodology. So I have quarterbacks, now all performers, lay on the mat. And then I put what's called alpha stim. It clips on their earlobes, earlobes and it stimulates the alpha brain waves. The alpha brain waves have to do with anxiety, depression, and insomnia. So it stimulates the alpha brain waves. And then we put headphones on them and we put sound frequency therapy, which is any kind of sound above 924 megahertz. So when we do those three things in combination, it decalcifies the pineal gland of the brain, which helps with concentration and focus. We stimulate the alpha brain waves through electrical current from two bases on the earlobes. And then, the, and then the crystals regulate the central autonomic nervous system. So when you have those three modalities going at once, you're relaxing the body, the central nervous system, the brain. And so the brain is our motor. So what, what quarterbacks will tell me, and, and he's permitted me to use his name, Ryan Tannehill is, is one of them I've worked with who was mm -hmm. the comeback player of the year last year for the Tennessee yep. Titans. But he's, his description is that he feels more relaxed than ever, but yet more focused. That's a pretty cool combination because usually when you're ultimately relaxed, you're not as focused. You're kind of just chilling. But he said, I'm so relaxed, but yet so, so dialed in and focused. So um, these methodologies, Tyler, are really designed to help people reach their ultimate level of calm. And that's what's called the parasympathetic side of the autonomic nervous system. The calmness where really... Um, performance lives because the other side of the autonomic that's the sympathetic side that's where stress and anxiety live right right um kind of leads right into the the next question um i think you know we talked kind of about the mindfulness uh anxiety with student athletes i think also as the you know the 80s when you played there was no social media the internet and no. it, was a, it was a different 
simpler, maybe we say life, uh, but what student athletes have to deal with today, and, and especially if they move into a higher level of professionalism with that, what simple tools do you usually work with athletes that are maybe portable, they can take with them to maybe just, you know, reduce some of that somatic anxiety? Yeah. So the quickest way to get from stress to calm or from sympathetic to the parasympathetic of your autonomic nervous system is through deep diaphragmatic breathing. When you breathe deep diaphragmatically, the brain gets approximately 30% more oxygen. When the brain gets 30% more oxygen, the, the, again, the autonomic nervous system it automatically kicks in. So we can think clear. Our decision-making is better. So that's the quickest way. And you know, it's interesting. I, I was the Rocky psychologist in 15, 16 as well. And I noticed right away that, that nobody was teaching our pitchers how to breathe diaphragmatically. You know, mm. you see a pitcher stand on the mound and the last thing they do before delivery is take a deep breath. But yet they were taking a chest cavity breath instead of a diaphragmatic breath. Yeah. And I, I was telling them, I'm like, you, you can get 30% more oxygen put yourself on that parasympathetic right before delivery. So it's so interesting, Tyler, to me, still to this day, you have a billion dollar industry, like Major League Baseball. You have a billion dollar industry like the NFL. And so many teams do not teach diaphragmatic breathing still. And it's really sad because, you know, teaching a, a Major League pitcher how to breathe right before delivery can actually be the difference in them being successful and not being successful. So that's the quickest way. So diaphragmatic breathing, a second way is, you know, visualization. Most people have visualized already in their life, closing their eyes and, and see what you want to see. But the next step they don't take is to talk it through. You see, when the larynx vibrates, so when I talk out loud, the larynx vibrates. And when it vibrates, it lights up the upper cortical structure of the brain. And what that means is the brain tunes in and says, oh, man, he's talking. So... If when we visualize, if we talk it through what we're actually visualizing, the brain thinks it's actually happening. And when the brain thinks it's actually happening, you're getting free reps. So instead of going out there on the mound and, and pitching and pitching, you can visualize and talk it through. The brain actually thinks it's happening. So when the brain gets out there, the next time you stand up there on the mound, the brain's going to say, oh, I've been here before a hundred times. Let's do it. Yep. So you know, those two things are really easy things anybody can do. You don't have to have any equipment with you. You don't have to have any devices with you. And that's to use diaphragmatic breathing and, and verbal and vocal visualization. I love that. The vocal visualization. I love how the transition of getting it from the mind to the mouth. Uh, yes. We've had uh, a while back, Trevor Moad on the podcast. He talks a lot about getting to neutral um, in the, more so the power negativity. And I was, can you talk about how, when that larynx starts to speak negatively about self, what that can do? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I know Trevor and I would say this, we have different kind of philosophies, which is good. Yeah. It doesn't mean his is better or mine's better or whatever. You know, he comes at it from an experiential base and I come at it originally from a scholarly base because of my PhD training. <laughs> But I don't focus on negative at all. I don't, I don't talk about negative. I don't focus on negative because I'll give you an example. 2015, we're in practice, Denver Broncos, right? 
And I love Gary Kubiak. We were rookies together. He was another class of 83 with Elway, Mecklenburg, and all those guys. But I remember one time Peyton Manning was throwing into double coverage, trying to fit a ball in there. And, and Gary was like, you can't throw it into double coverage. You can't throw it into double coverage. And so I made a note of that. And when we got back in the house, I told coach, I says, coach, let me give you a tip. Not telling you what to do, because you never want to tell coaches what to do, right? Right, right. You want to give them a tip, right? And I says, look, you never want to tell an athlete what not to do. Or a kid, for that example. If you got kids out there, yep. you want to tell them what to do. So instead of saying, don't throw it into double coverage, you say, when you see double coverage, throw it out of bounds. When you see double coverage, check down. When you see double coverage, tell them what you want them to do instead of what not. So when you ask me to describe what's going to happen with the negative vibration, I, I'm going to, I'm going to cheerfully and gleefully decline to do that because I teach positivity. I teach what we can do, never focus on what we can't do. Because, and this is why, because the brain will literally pay attention to the negative. Let me give you an example. Um, the average human being has 45,000 thoughts a day. Okay up to 75% of those thoughts are self-doubt or negative, okay? So now we're talking about 33,000 thoughts a day. Since we were little kids, toddlers, we were taught, don't put your hand on a hot stove. Don't cross the street without looking both ways. We hear don't, don't, don't so many times that when we get to be six or seven or eight years old, we are immersed in don'ts and do nots, okay? So then it's like we're walking around like, okay, I think I can do this, um, but I shouldn't do that, and I shouldn't do. And literally, as we develop into young adolescents and middle adolescents, we're carrying around these recordings of don'ts, and our brain pays attention to them. Let me give you an example right now, Tyler, okay? Whatever you do right now, Tyler, do not think of the color blue. Do not think of the color blue right now, okay? Whatever you do, what'd you do? You thought of the color blue. Yeah, found okay. it. I found it what you're wearing. It's right there. It's like, <laughs> right? So, so my point is, is that the brain will pay attention to what we have recorded. And most of us, unless you grew up in Gandhi's house or my house, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> But unless you grew up in a home that really focused on that positivity, that asset word choice, word choice is huge, Tyler. Word choice is huge in life. Very much. But unless you grew up in a home like that, you, may, you probably grew up in a deficit-based word choice home that focused on don't, don't, don't. We do that as parents to protect our kids. I get it. I understand it. But so I, I, it's always focusing on what we can do and build from there instead of what we can't do. For sure. I was thinking uh, about two years ago, I distinctly remember being on a sideline and in a huddle with a, a football team and they called a timeout fourth and short, right? Called the timeout, called everybody over coach goes, don't jump off sides, guys, don't jump off sides, guys, don't <laughs> jump off sides. As soon as we broke the huddle, I was like, this is, this is a disaster. What? And, yeah. you, and you know exactly what happened. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I was just like, you're hot stoving this huddle so bad right now. Right. <laughs> you know, right. And, and it was just, uh, it's a painful moment, but uh, predictable when, when you start to vocalize those things. Um, yeah. What, in this time of, of COVID with empty arenas, adjustments, protocols, 
uh, I, I like I feel like there's sport, but there's less camaraderie just because people don't get a college teams and people aren't around lunch rooms and the social de- development time. As that comes back and people start to fill arenas, what are some of possible the greatest challenges you see athletes facing as they kind of, or maybe not, uh, get back to, you know, maybe a, a life that was the previous routine? Yeah. Well, I, you know, one of the biggest challenges that COVID provides is the lack of social interaction through athletics and sports. I mean, we love that aspect of it. In fact, a lot of people don't stop and think about this. Sport competition is the most social interaction we have in our society. Let me give you an example. So if I go into a classroom and I take an exam and I fail that exam, there's two people that are going to know me and the professor or me and my teacher, right? Two people know. But if I go onto a football field, basketball court, ice rink, whatever it is, and I fail, who knows? There's, you know, traditionally thousands of people, my teammates, it's a very social interactive environment. And sometimes we don't think about that. Basically what we're doing is this, when the Broncos take the field against, let's just say the Kansas City Chiefs, they're basically saying, here's what we got, what do you got? And let's do it in front of 75,000 people. And so people get to watch. It's a very social, social comparative environment. And when you have comparison in a sociological way, that's what takes up stress. That's what takes up anxiety because you're comparing. So actually COVID has kind of removed some of that without the audiences, without the social piece. But I'll tell you what, the more we get back to normal and man, knock on wood, we're going to do that (laughs) because it's time. The more we get back to normal, it's going to be really healthy for everyone involved for the fans, for the players, because we do get that social interaction. You know, I have three sons and they're 12, 14 and 17. And I can tell you this, they're all very social beings and them not being able to be in school, at least not full time. They're now in a hybrid where they go twice a week. That's really harmed them in terms of their overall development, cognitive development, physiological development, but I think that I think we're all waiting for it to get back to normal because we all miss that social interaction aspect of playing performance in sports. Yeah, it definitely enriches uh, sport and uh, I think a lot of things in life, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, Dr. Man, Pritch, love having you on. Love your positivity. Thank you for challenging me with my poor choice of try. Um, and, uh, <laughs> love your infectious positivity been so so excited to have you on i'm glad we got to do this last question we like to ask uh frequently is how do you define success self-love um you know a lot of people talk about um outside you know achievements degrees um you know the ability to make it to the NFL or the major league baseball or the NBA, um, you know, the neighborhood you live in, your cars, you drive, whatever, all that external stuff. But you know, Tyler, it's all about self-love because when you love yourself, you're completely self-accepting judgment of self melts away when you totally accept yourself. And when you totally love and accept yourself, then and only then can you totally accept others. You know, I've often told people my job 
is to understand people. It's not to judge people. I mean, I could have someone walk in my office and say, Doc, I just murdered two people down the street and I buried them over there. And I'd say, you know what? Have a seat, bro. Let's talk about it. Let's figure this thing out. I wouldn't go, what? You did what? <laughs> you know, my job is to understand them. And so for me, the only way that I can be 100% accepting and understanding other people is I have to have self-love yeah. and really acceptance, 100%. And it doesn't come overnight. You know, I, I can't say when I was 25, I was at that point. But I think it, after time, you, re you recognize that self-love is about just accepting all my imperfections, all my gaps, whatever they may be. And I want to just finish by saying this too, Tyler, is everyone out there struggles. You know, LeBron struggles. We just don't see it. Kobe struggled when he, when he played. We didn't see it all the time. We just saw the successes. Um, I've worked with some of the most high-profile athletes in the world. I mean, first ballot Hall of Famers, people that are in the Hall of Fame in their sport. They all struggle. They all struggle in life. They all struggle in their sport. They all struggle in one aspect or another. And I want the everyday person to recognize that. You know, we look at someone who's a first ballot Hall of Famer. They're a millionaire. They're, they have all this, right? All this stuff. But if they don't have self-love, complete acceptance of self, then they don't have anything. You know, I found it interesting. I've went to some third world countries and watched kids playing in the mud and they got smiles from ear to ear. And I'm like, man, that's, that is so dope. Joy. And we're here. Yeah. And we're here in America and we got every toy in the book and we got, we're, we're the most highly um, diagnosed depression nation in the world six times over. Yeah. So it's not about the external stuff, Tyler. It's about self-love acceptance because when you love yourself, all judgment melts away from self and others. That's true success.